Please turn with me now to the Word of God in Exodus 17. The sermon this morning is going to deal with verses 8 through 16, and I'm not going to read all of that again. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink, wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel, and thy rod wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand, and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men, and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses said, unto, said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. The Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, Jehovah Nissi, for he said, Because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. 
I hope you know, my dear friends, I hope you know that the different places that were part of Israel's journey through the wilderness are places where you and I also find ourselves. That's perhaps especially true of Rephidim, where Israel murmured over a lack of water and had to do battle with the Amalekites. Rephidim is a place where you will or should find yourself every day of your journey through the wilderness of this world to the heavenly land of Canaan. Not just once, but every day. A child of God does find himself at Rephidim or ought to find himself there. And you and I too, true Israelites, by faith in Jesus Christ, find that Rephidim is the place where we do battle, you and I do battle, with Amalek. Because as God says in this passage, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The Amalekites are still around. And the war of which God speaks goes on still today. We'll talk more about that as we go on this morning. But doing battle, you and I doing battle at Rephidim against Amalek must be sure that we do not forget the name that Moses gave to the altar he built in commemoration of Israel's victory, Jehovah Nissi. Jehovah, my banner. The bulletin says Jehovah, our banner. And that's the theme that I gave to the bulletin clerk. But really the name is more personal than that and refers to the fact that each of us personally must battle Amalek and must do so in the name of Jehovah Nessie, Jehovah my banner. And that's the focus too of this morning's sermon. That name of God, the name that Moses gave to the altar 
which he built in commemoration of Israel's victory. We're going to talk first about Amalek. Amalek then and Amalek now. And talk about Amalek as an enemy, a perpetual enemy of God's people and of God's church. When Moses and Israel and Israel under the leadership of Joshua had to fight against Amalek, they were fighting against a nation that had descended from Esau and the Canaanites. Esau, Jacob's brother, and the Canaanites who lived in the promised land. That's one thing we should know about them. We should also know that this encounter between Israel and Amalek was not a chance meeting between two nations. Amalek lived far to the north of Rephidim. And there can be no doubt about it that Amalek had come far from home, far out of its way, to attack Israel. And to do so because Amalek, like all the nations of that time, had heard the story of what God had done for Israel. And had heard too then that Israel was God's nation and God's people. This was no chance battle, but a deliberate attack on the church of the Old Testament by those who counted themselves enemies of God and of his church. That's the second thing that we should know about Amalek. And along with that, we should also realize that's true of all the battles of the Old Testament between Israel and the nations, that these battles, these attacks, were motivated by Satan himself. I'm not saying that the Amalekites knew that they were doing Satan's work in attacking Israel, but that's true nevertheless. Satan used the nations against Israel through all those years of the Old Testament to destroy, if it were possible, not only God's people, but to destroy the hope of the promise, that grand promise of the coming of Christ. You see that more clearly at some times than at others 
But that was always the case in the battles of the Old Testament. They were not just battles between one nation and another, but part of the great battle of the kingdom of darkness against the kingdom of God. And always, always with a view to preventing, if that were possible, the coming and work of Christ so long promised. That means, I think you see the connection now, that means that Amalek represented, still represents, still is the ungodly, reprobate, unbelieving world in which we live, represents that ungodly and unbelieving world and the fact that that world is always at war with God's church. And just as that war, I'm going to talk a little bit about more about that in a moment, just as that war was motivated by Satan, so it is also today. The world's war on the church, the perpetual strife between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness is Satan's work. Again, the ungodly do not always realize that they are Satan's instruments in what they do against the church of Christ. But that doesn't change the fact that they are. They're doing Satan's work. And the saddest thing of all, and that goes back to this history too, is that the struggle at Rephidim, then and now, is always a struggle in which it becomes evident that there's another enemy, if you will, an Amalek within. Israel was in no spiritual condition to fight God's battle against Amalek. They were weary and discouraged, complaining and murmuring to the extent that they were ready to stone Moses, forever leading them out of the land of Egypt. And I suppose you could say, then, that Amalek, in its attack on Israel, had allies in Israel itself, in that sinful nature which showed itself so clearly at Rephidim. And that is the case also today. We fight Amalek. We fight them 
as the legions, part of the legions of Satan himself. But there's always that Amalek within, which must be resisted as well. The world, the devil, and the flesh. Always, always the same enemy. And I emphasize that. Emphasize the fact that those enemies are real. Because when everything's going well, when we're prosperous as we are, far beyond anything our parents and grandparents ever dreamed, then we forget that we're at war and have enemies. We sang Psalter number 5 a little while ago, Psalm 3. O Lord, how are my foes increased? Against me many rise. How many say in vain for help, he on his God relies. Did you even think of yourself when you sang those words? That is as true for us today as it was for Israel at Rephidim. Always, always at war. And never a ceasefire in that war against Amalek. But I emphasize that too because we live in a world that shows us a friendly face and in whose faces we see no sign of the kind of enmity that Amalek displayed against Israel. And the result is, of course, that we let our guard down, don't even realize that they are still enemies. But if you think about it, you see that. I was thinking about that as I traveled yesterday. But I was traveling and in the airports with Amalekites tattooed, full of studs, wearing clothing that leaves very little to the imagination, especially the women. And that's warfare. You understand that? That's war. That's Amalek making war on Israel. Not with swords and spears and those kind of weapons, but a different kind of warfare that is far more dangerous and threatening to the church of Jesus Christ. They don't even notice you, of course. 
when you sit by them in the airplane or walk past them in the airport. But the music they're listening to, practically every one of them is listening to something. Music they're listening to, what they're watching on their screens, the way they're dressed, their outward appearance, though not in every case. And I make no pretense of judging their hearts. Is war on you and on your children. Because it says, this is the way of happiness. This is what matters. This is popularity. This is the way you get noticed. This is the only thing that matters. And if you think that's not warfare, then think of the influence it has on you and on your children. The evil influence. And Satan is behind that. You understand that? Just as he was behind the attack of Amalek on Israel, he's behind that too. And in his subtlety, is making war on the church in a way that at least from our human perspective seems more effective than when he persecutes and actively tries to destroy the very existence of the church of Christ. I think you'll agree with me when I say that that kind of warfare does more, far more spiritual damage than persecution. It's war. My dear fellow believers, war with Amalek. War that's motivated by Satan himself. War that has as its goal to destroy the promise and the hope of the promise. The promise of Christ's coming can't be touched anymore. But that doesn't mean Satan has given up. If he can, he will destroy that promise of God in Christ Jesus, that He will be the God of His people and of their children. And you and I then are at war with Him and with those who serve Him. And with that perpetual ally that He has, in our own natures, which are always drawn, always want to be like Amalek. 
always dissatisfied, often complaining about God's way and the trials that we have to face in God's way. We fight that battle. You understand that. Sometimes, well, we fight it first of all in our own, each of us personally in our own lives. You are fighting Amalek, especially the Amalek within. When you're on your knees in repentance for sin. When you have the Word of God open in front of you. Then you're making war on Amalek. Making war on Amalek when realizing your weakness and sinfulness. You pray desperately and earnestly for the work of the Spirit and the gift of holiness. Making war on Amalek when you're resolved that you will not in your thinking, in your appearance, in any way be like them. When you take to heart the Word of God in 2 Corinthians 6, come ye out from among them and be ye separate. So you're fighting that battle. Thousand different ways in which we fight that battle. Fight it in our homes when we discipline our children. That is war on Amalek. We're fighting that battle when we have devotions, family devotions, at the beginning of the day. If not fighting that battle, then at least equipping ourselves and our children for that battle. You're making war on Amalek when you bring your children up in the fear and nurture and admonition of the gospel. Making war, spiritual warfare, when you set yourself as a godly example to your wife, to your husband, to your children, to the other members of the church, instead of allowing yourself to be an example of worldliness and godlessness to them. Church makes war when she, through her elders, disciplines us. She's fighting the great battle that will not be finished till the end of time against evil. And more often than not, it's the Amalek within, isn't it? The Amalek in me. So don't sing Psalm 5, O Lord, how are my foes increased? And never think of yourself. 
But think of the enmity. Veiled, but there, of the world in which we live. The enmity of Satan and of your own sinfulness. And then sing those words, Against me many rise. And prepare yourself for battle. There are two things we, I've said that we fight that battle in a thousand different ways. You're fighting it here. When you worship, you're making war on the kingdom of darkness by the songs you sing and by your careful attention to the Word of God, and by your loving fellowship with one another and with God Himself. Tell you, there's nothing that Satan hates as much as this. And he will do anything to interfere with it. Whether it be by distraction, or whether it be by open persecution, by seeking to destroy the church from within, by raising up his own Amalekites within the church, or by seducing you and me and our children to his side and to his cause. But there are two things that stand out in that battle as it's recorded. It's the same battle. The Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Never has that warfare ceased. But there are two things that stand out in that battle. The first is the leadership of Joshua. And I think you know where that's going. The first thing, in other words, is the leadership of Jesus. Because that's who Joshua represents in this warfare. Jesus, the captain of our salvation, who is our only hope in the battle that we fight. That and the rod that Moses held up there on the hill. And when he grew weary, held up with the assistance of Aaron and her. That was the banner to which Moses was referring when he named that altar Jehovah Nissi. That rod was the banner of God's people. The banner under which and for which and in whose service they fought. That rod represented the power and the faithfulness of God as the God of His people. 
And that banner, if you will think of it that way, had written on it in letters of gold, the battle is the Lord's. Really, the leadership of Joshua said that too. Said, said what we sing in Psalter number 87, I think it is. Not human strength or mighty hosts, not charging steeds or warlike boasts can save from overthrow. But God will save from death and shame all those who fear and trust His name. And they no one shall know. That's the banner under which we fight. The battle is the Lord. And both that rod and the leadership of Joshua say that to us. And that's the reason, too, why it's recorded in the Word of God that Moses had to have help holding that rod up. There he stood, later sat on top of the hill, holding up that rod until his arms grew weary and he had to sit down and be supported by Aaron and her, one on each side. I remember thinking when I was younger that that was a bit unfair. But it was God's way of saying that it wasn't Moses. Nothing depended on him. It was that rod alone under which and for which and in whose service Israel fought. That rod as a banner which said the battle is the Lord's. And it has to be, doesn't it? Isn't that what you and I learn every day in our own homes and in the church? Not human strength or mighty hosts, not charging steeds or warlike boasts can save from overthrow, but God will save from death and shame. In our efforts to make war on the evil that's in all our hearts, in fighting that battle in our own homes and marriages. Is not that the lesson we learn? Jehovah Nessie. Jehovah, our banner. Jehovah, in whom we put our trust alone. Jehovah, our only strength and our only hope in the battle. Jehovah, in Jesus Christ, our Savior, represented here by the Jesus 
of the Old Testament. The battle is the Lord's. And that is the main point of this morning's sermon too. You must, you must, I must. In that constant warfare against Amalek, remember that the battle is the Lord because when we don't, then what happens is what Luther wrote in that great Reformation hymn. Did we in our own strength confide? I don't even need to say the rest of it. Do I? We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. That must be the banner we carry into this battle whether we're waging it in our own personal lives, in our families, or in the church, that must be the name we carry with us. I could best illustrate that by using a couple of examples from my own experience. One has to do with family life. I believe looking back over the years that I was guilty, sinfully guilty, of over-disciplining my children. Perhaps disciplining them to the point where discipline began to run over into abuse. But you know why? Because I forgot in that battle against evil, as I saw it in my own children, forgot Jehovah Nessie. The battle is the Lord's. We must discipline our children. We have to teach them the fear of the Lord. We have to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the gospel and do what God requires. But when we forget that the battle is the Lord's, then we begin to act as though it depends on us, on our efforts, on our severity. And then we've forgotten that name Moses gave to his altar. It's the way it is, isn't it? Another example. It's probably characteristic of most young ministers. But when I was first in the ministry, I thought and acted as though every problem had to be jumped on with both feet. Every little problem. That there had to be an immediate solution, and of course, too, that's 
utter folly that it had to be my solution. But where's the room in that? For the truth that the battle is the Lord's. When we remember that, then we sometimes, in patience, wait for the Spirit of God to do what He alone can do in the battle against evil. Then we depend not on jumping with both feet on everything that looks like it needs to be jumped on, but wait for God to do, whether it be the other members of the church or our own family members, what He can do. When we forget Jehovah Nissi, in speaking to an unbeliever, or even a fellow Christian who disagrees with that, with us, it always degenerates into arguing and bitterness and anger. I can't change anyone's heart or mind. That's the work of God Himself in the battle against evil. And I must not go beyond my responsibility to fight in the way that He commands in His Word by speaking the truth in love. You see? You see how easy it is to do what Luther said? Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? And when I forget, forget those lines from Luther, forget the Word of God here in Exodus 17, then I go all wrong and begin to think and act as though the battle is mine. Marital problems? Instead of praying that God will change my husband or wife, speaking when I have opportunity, in love, always in love. I become angry. And the marriage relationship, instead of becoming something blessed and happy, becomes a disaster. And I've forgotten that the battle is the Lord's. I have my responsibilities in that battle. I have to fight, but never beyond what the Word of God gives me reason to do. And when I do, then I make the battle my own. Then, if you will, Moses' hands come down and Amalek prevails.
When I remember that the battle is the Lord's, then I know too, and that's what I'll leave you with this morning, that I know too that the victory is sure. Do my part in that battle. I'm called to fight. And I ought to go, go out every morning with the sword of the Spirit, the helmet of salvation, the blessed plate of righteousness, my feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and all of the rest. But never, never, never forgetting that the battle is His. And because it's His, it's not just to be one, it's already one. You understand that? If you ask, even of the battle that Israel fought at Rephidim, why did they win? Then the answer is, first of all, of course, they were under the leadership of the Jesus of the Old Testament. They won because of that banner that Moses held up there on the hill. But the answer is really, they won because the battle would be won and the counsel and good pleasure of God was already won at the cross of Christ. The battle against evil was won there and won as God's battle against evil because you and I are forever inadequate in our efforts and in our warfare to win anything. There's one at the cross. The battle you fight, you understand that? For Christian, biblical, Happy, married life was one at the cross. It is not won by your efforts. The battle for covenant, family, life was won at the cross. It isn't won by your efforts. The battle for the peace and safety of the church was won at the cross. It's not won by you and I. And that's why we may never go beyond in the warfare we wage against evil. And I trust you realize that we have that warfare it is never won by us. Isaac read for devotions this morning Psalm 124. You go home saying this and thinking about your own warfare, wherever you wage it, 
you go home with these words. Now Israel may say in that in truth, if that the Lord had not our right maintained, if that the Lord had not with us remained, would cruel men against us rose to strive, we surely had been swallowed up alive. Blessed be the Lord who made us not their prey. As from the snare a bird escapeth free, their net is rent, and so escaped are we. Our only help is in Jehovah's name. Fight. Don't ever cease your warfare, but fight in the name of Jehovah Nissi, and in no other name, because it is really the name of Him who won the battle against evil. My evil, your evil, all evil. At the cross. It's hard, you know, I don't think we may make that connection, but it's hard to think of Moses going up that hill with a rod in his hand and not think of another hill and another rod. A rod on which our Savior was lifted up and won forever the battle that Am that Israel fought at Rephidim. Won it for them, won it for us. Amen. Father, we acknowledge that we preach and hear Thy Word with much weakness and sin. And yet we trust that by the Word Thou wilt give grace and strength and help to us Thy people. Not for our deserving, but in thy boundless mercy. So use the word as it was preached this morning. And forgive us our weakness and sin in preaching and hearing the word. Bless us as we go our separate ways for a few hours. Bring us back together again this evening in peace and safety. We ask all things. In Jesus' name, amen.